My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Hello, everybody. I've spent a fascinating few days reading about sex dolls, vegan meat, alternative ways of having babies, and alternative ways of dying. That's because I've been reading a new book by Jenny Kleeman, and Jenny has joined us today. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Hi, Matthew. So thanks for taking time to talk to us. Before I ask you the question we ask everybody else on this pod, just tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to write this kind of amazing book. Well, the book is about four inventions that are going to change birth, food, sex and death, the fundamental elements of human existence. And I've just always been very interested by the way that human beings rely on technology, the way that we more and more so depend on technology to give us what we truly want, to allow us to have what we want without making any sacrifices. And I think we're at this unique point now where the fundamental elements of human existence, which have hitherto largely been beyond our control, we're now on the brink of an era when we can radically change them, we can control them. Technology is giving us options in terms of birth, food, sex and death, how we're born, how we die, how we eat and how we have relationships. So I was interested in the unintended consequences of trying to control the uncontrollable and whether or not the solutions offered by this technology are solutions that we ultimately really want in the end. And the book is called Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death, just for people who are already, as they listen, wanting to get hold of it. Well, look, Jenny, there's a lot to talk about because I found the book really engrossing and fascinating. But before we do that, and in case I forget, let's ask you the question that we ask everybody on this podcast. Jenny Kleeman, what is your big idea for the post-pandemic era? My big idea for the post-pandemic era would be to take from what we've learned in lockdown, we've learned that human beings have an incredible capacity to change and adapt. I think we have always taken for granted this idea that certain things are beyond us. Oh, that's just what human nature is. You know, we'll never get people to eat less meat. You'll never get people to change their behaviour in such a way that it can really mitigate climate change. What the lockdown showed us is actually, when the need is very great, we really can adapt and change in incredibly fundamental ways. So my big idea would be for us to all drastically reduce our meat intake to once a week and for people to stop feeding it to their children so much so that children don't grow up with a taste for it. That would make a very big difference to the planet. So that's a kind of specific idea. But my general takeaway, what I've learned from all of this is that human beings, we do ourselves short. We assume that human beings can't change and that we are all sort of selfish and self-interested. And the pandemic has shown us that we can really act for the benefit of our community and we can make very drastic changes quickly. So in your book, as you travel around the world, exploring ideas and innovations and businesses at the cutting edge of these technological frontiers, 
You know, it's interesting for me as I read it that you go through a similar kind of arc in each occasion, which is you enter into it having read some of the kind of breathless commentary, meeting people who are making all sorts of bold claims. And then what you discover is a mixture of kind of hucksterism, of hype, of eccentricity, and sometimes just kind of bad stuff, really. And there was a kind of Although these journeys are different, and each one fascinating themselves, there are elements that are quite similar about the journey you go on each time, it felt to me. Yes. I think it is certainly the case that we human beings like to be dazzled by shiny new things. And at first, all of these ideas sound very appealing. And a lot of the book is about the stories we like to tell ourselves and the stories that journalists like to tell. You know, if you think about a hyper-realistic sex doll with AI and animatronics that you can program to have whatever personality you want and you can design so it looks however you want it to look, that's a very good story for a journalist to tell. It's very alluring. And what journalists generally don't want to do is point out what's not working about it and how it isn't quite all that you imagine when you conjure this image in your brain of what it would be like. And the same goes for meat grown in a lab. You imagine a kind of steak in a petri dish. It would have to be a rather large petri dish, but you imagine something like that. But when you actually drill down on it, these things are are not what you want them to be. And what was interesting for me was the extent to which we continue imagining that they are what we want them to be, even in, in the face of evidence that they don't exist, which allows people to make a lot of money and to raise a lot of venture capital. But it doesn't help when what these products are supposed to be doing is solving really big problems that we could be solving by other means if we weren't so distracted by these shiny new inventions. That was one of the real revelations for me about the book. It's clearly a book about technology. It's clearly a book about business. It's clearly a book about kind of human motivations and behaviours and to a certain extent also kind of politics. But it's also actually, isn't it, a book about the media and about journalism? Because you know, what really strikes you in the book is the kind of contingent nature of this. So, you know, the whole story of clean meat, and of course, as you explained, there's all sorts of controversies about what we call this alternative meat. This all starts really from a single press conference, you know, and that creates a kind of dependency, which always goes back to that one press conference, which led to the spawning of all sorts of business and venture. But then you find out that press conference was itself a kind of replaying of a kind of arts installation. But it's fascinating me that our attitude to quite complex areas of technology is so influenced by the first time it kind of bursts into the public consciousness. Absolutely. And this idea of performance, this idea that you present something and you perform it in a certain way, and it's a display, it sounds like a kind of magic trick. And in the past, if you look at the history of science and technology, it was always displayed to the public in this sort of way of awe and wonder and, you know, public shows where people would come and watch. And I think for me, what really What was a real benefit for me was that I'm not a tech journalist. I don't routinely cover tech. I'm a generalist in many ways. And that really helped in terms of how to look at these subjects because I was coming at it from a kind of novice perspective. And also I wasn't worried about maintaining relationships with all of these people. And I wasn't embarrassed about asking very, very basic questions. And quite often it's the most basic questions that get the most interesting answers. And so I was able to kind of penetrate the idea of the performance and not necessarily be dazzled by what I was seeing to an extent by just saying, you know, does this really work? Can you really do this? You know, can I see how it's done? Which are questions that people don't want to ask when the story they want to tell is the story of the performance. It can make you quite gloomy, it felt to me, in the sense that GM food got a bad press and it's never been able to kind of get rid of that bad press when arguably 
it is actually a technology which has been kind of quite thoroughly tested and isn't actually that different from kind of practices that came before it. Then you've got the whole 5G COVID craziness that's been around for the last few weeks. So the sense that we can be in a situation where the way in which science, scientific risks, scientific benefits are communicated to the public in ways which are reasonably authentic, I mean, it feels like we're a long way away from that. Yes, but it also, I think, fundamentally at the heart of all of this is is the idea of control. You know, in one respect, we want to feel like nature isn't so random and uncontrollable and that we are not subject to things that we have no power over. But in another respect, we like to also be able to sign up to these conspiracies about dark forces controlling parts of nature that can never be controlled, if you see what I mean. And I think human beings have always been obsessed by control and it's very bewildering when we base circumstances that we have no power over. And the whole GM thing, I mean, arguably billions of lives have been saved because of genetically modified crops in many parts of the world where there were famines. And yet the particular label sticks so badly because of this idea of the negative consequences of trying to control nature in that respect. And the whole business with 5G is this idea that nefarious forces beyond our control are secretly making us ill. And that was kind of something else I wanted to explore in the book is that we kind of need to learn to live with the fact that even though we're getting better at designing things, we cannot control everything. And that that is as fundamental part of the human existence as birth, food, sex and death is that life is really quite random, no matter how clever we are at making things. The interface here between business and media was another thing that hit me, which was that quite a lot of the businesses that you spoke to had produced videos which were demonstrably massively over claiming so this is what you referred to I'm um, not just you but the fake it and then make it kind of culture and then journalists are all too willing to be part of the process of hyping things up so there's almost a conspiracy to hype the journalist wants a story you know because the journalists have got an editor saying give me interesting stuff and some of this stuff gets on the front page and then the business wants to hype it up because they want to get investment into their business so there's a of complicity going on here. Yes, there's a lot of collusion. And that is how journalism has always worked. You know, my background for many years was in documentary making. And it always seems strange to me from the beginning that you don't just go out and see what's there. You have to know the story before you go out and you have to cast it in your head. You know, we'll have one person from this side and one person from that side. And that's still something that very much I do now in terms of thinking about what voices I'd like to include. But I give myself more leeway when it comes to the story. But yes, I mean, journalists have a particular story that they want to tell. And sometimes that can give a terrible confirmation bias that they don't really want to challenge or shake and their editors won't want to shake and they don't want to come home and say, actually, you know, that sex robot that we went to film was just a mannequin with a speaker in her head. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the ways that some of these robots have been described is absolutely hilarious. There's a particular scene in the book, Jenny, where you go into the garage of a guy who's told you that you know, and the way that he's described it, you know, you think you're going to walk in and this, you know, perfect robot woman's going to walk towards you and shake your hand. And and actually, it turns out that he's just got some bits of kind of plastic and machinery lying around on the workman. Yes, he's this headless doll who can't move because her legs are too heavy for the motors that he's trying out. Her knee could kind of move up and down, but it was sort of wheezed as it moved up and down. And it was this hideous, <laughs> disgusting thing he'd bought. Some very- the arthritic robot. I love that. Yeah, this is the arthritic robot in very cheap lingerie. Yeah. But yet I still think there's a story there. And the story there is the drive to do it. And the fact that this particular man had invested so much of his and his family's time and money in doing this shows that there is something kind of irresistible about this idea and the the fact that he's not alone. And there are so many people who are so much better funded who are doing it. It shows that actually one day 
this is going to be achievable, even if this bloke in a garage in Las Vegas is not going to be the first person to do it. Well, you say that, but I thought the other thing that was interesting was that in quite a few of these technologies, there is an assumption that it's just about getting the technology right. But yet there is a kind of, and I think there's a particular term for this in the sex doll trade, which is all the robot trade, which is the kind of weirdness of interacting with a robot. There is still a question, which is even if you got the perfect, whatever that would be, but even if you really had a very, very good robot companion, even if you had vegan meat that was chewy you know even if you did find a way for pregnancy to take place outside the body there's still a question actually will people want it you know because you can't ever really test whether people want something until the technology so it's a bit of a catch-22 if people are saying well the reason people don't want this is because the technology is quite right well you'll never know that until the technology is quite right and you might then discover people say i don't care how perfect it is it's not a human being or i don't care how perfect it is actually the reason i like meat is because it has involved killing something Yes. I mean, I go into that in the book. With robots, it's called the uncanny valley, the revulsion you feel where something that is very close to human but not quite human is in front of you. And it's something that I felt when I was interviewing the sex robot, this feeling of awkwardness and of, uh, I don't know how to relate to this thing. And then there's the yuck factor, the ick factor of being born out of a plastic bag or, or eating meat that has been grown in a lab. And I ultimately, I think that is something that people will get over. I think... It may not be for everybody. These technologies certainly won't have mass appeal at first, but there will be enough people who are prepared to try them. And ultimately, you know, I I talk about IVF a lot in the book and IVF, which was, you know, the height of Frankenscience when it was first being discussed. It's now so mundane and commonplace. You sit on the tube, there are adverts for fertility clinics that will do IVF. I have so many friends who've had children through IVF. It's just completely normal. But when you actually think about what it means to conceive a baby in that way, that's a very radical and very strange idea that has just become mundane. So whilst I think those are legitimate criticisms of, you know, aren't people going to be put off by how these disruptive technologies are encroaching on such intimate parts of human existence. I think that feeling will be temporary. The other thing I thought was interesting in the book was the people you speak to, the scientists, the entrepreneurs, all have this shtick, which is they're trying to develop a technology that will change everyone's lives and improve everyone's lives. But in the end, this technology, certainly for the foreseeable future, is only going to be available to the very rich so if you talk about the kind of particular forms of surrogacy that you were looking at, for example, that where you get basically another woman to have your baby so that you don't have to become pregnant, but it's biologically your baby. This is just available to extremely well-off people, and it's a service provided by people who don't have a great deal of choice. So, you know, one of the risks, of course, here is that if this technology does come right, it might always be, or for the foreseeable future, so expensive that all it does is offer yet more new freedoms and options for the rich that are not accessible to everybody else. Yes. And also, I mean, particularly if you're looking at lab-grown meat, that you can buy a kind of ethical superiority, a kind of a way of living where you don't live at the expense of animals. That means that you can look at people in poorer parts of the world who eat meat from animals and they will appear more and more barbaric to you. And it will be a way of being able to, you know, assert the superiority of wealthy nations who can afford to produce meat in this way over those that can't. I mean, yes, I think all of these products are going to be elite products, certainly at first. And I can't imagine, you know, sex robots being available to everyone ever. And that's a that is a very big concern, the inequality aspect of it. But the main thing for me also was that all of these products are a kind of 
you know, what all of the people behind them have in common is, as you say, they say they're trying to help the world and make the world a better place, save the planet and improve the human experience. But actually, they're not motivated by money, although many of them really want to get rich. What they want is they want to be the next Steve Jobs. They want to be famous. They want validation. And that's what so much of the book was about, was not so much the money, but about these giant male egos and what they might be creating alongside these very eye-catching inventions inadvertently. Yeah, because men and male power was a pretty recurrent theme in the book. You know, that's most obvious, of course, with the notion of the submissive sex robot. But it was something that cropped up quite a lot in the book, I thought. It was, and I really wasn't expecting it to in my reporting. You know, I am not Caroline Criado Perez. I didn't expect to be writing a book that came to those kinds of conclusions. But even with the meat, the man who grew the first lab-grown hamburger, Mark Post, who's the, you know, if you can imagine a lab-grown hamburger, it's probably his that you imagine, because his was the one that got all the press. He was the one who said to me that, you know, meat is masculine, meat is associated with power, with being a man. And if we can produce it outside of animals, then maybe that aspect of humanity will wither away. And we'll no longer prize that aspect of eating meat. Meat will become this very wimpy thing, and we'll be much happier from eating broccoli, that it's going to become a kind of methadone. And when he said that, I really, you know, because I, I really like meat, I really like steak, and I've often felt that it's quite unladylike that I do. And the same goes with death. I hadn't really thought about a gendered dimension of assisted dying, but wherever assisted dying is legal, it's women who choose it a lot more than men, even though suicide is much more of a male phenomenon, per se. And I think part of that is to do with the fear of being a burden, being used to doing the caring rather than being cared for. Maybe it's being a burden is something that women fear more acutely than men. So I, I realise that in all of those areas, these are products designed by men that are disproportionately going to affect women, which surprised me. But then I guess it shouldn't have surprised me, given that the book is ultimately about domination and control, which have traditionally always been kind of masculine attributes. In a way, one of the ironies of the book is that at the end of the book, there's a very kind of poignant chapter right at the end where you say, look, you know, in each of these areas, there are social solutions. There are solutions which we could adopt, which would address many of these issues or would deal with the kind of appetites that we've got or would enable us to die with more dignity or whatever it might be. But rather than exploring these social solutions, these policy solutions, having the debates we need to have about what really matters to us, instead we reach for these technological solutions which are, on the one hand, not nearly as close as we might imagine and be in many ways problematic. But yet, in a sense, you yourself fall into the trap because 295 pages of the book are dedicated to all this stuff about technology, which is completely fascinating. And in the end, there's just a small number of pages saying, well, we ought to adopt a different kind of approach. And the insight that led me to, and maybe it's a commonplace, but it occurred to me that when it comes to social policy and politics, journalists tend to be much more interested in problems than in solutions. Maybe this thought came into my head because yesterday I was also talking to a journalist who wanted me to comment on a big story. And I said to them, oh, by the way, I'm making a speech about this in a few days' time, offering some solutions. And he didn't seem interested in that at all. So, you know, those of us who work in this field, we kind of know that when it gets into the kind of minutiae of the policy recommendations of what you might need to do, then journalists tend to lose interest. They're much more interested in exposing the problems. Whereas technology, it's the reverse. As you demonstrate in your book, journalists can always be suckered into a story that says this technology will be on your plate or in your house within a few years. And they don't bother with, as you did, all the problems, all the impediments that might get in the way of that. So this is a peculiar world where 
we are inclined to focus on problems, not solutions, when it comes to society. We're, we're inclined to focus on solutions and underestimate the problems when it comes to technology. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would say that that comes from, again, the stories that we like to tell. And the stories that we like to tell are about flawed humans or people who have behaved in an underhand way or tragedies. We like tragedies. And then science fiction, you know, these fantastic machines of the future and these flawless devices that are going to be able to solve these problems that us flawed humans can't solve. I think that's very much the case. I mean, I'm a journalist who has looked a lot at social affairs and things like that. And you are always looking for the problems. The solutions don't make such a kind of big, shiny, fantastic story to tell. And that's because quite often, I mean, this is the case of the book as well. You know, I say this in the book, the solutions are really quite mundane. You know, we just need to eat a little bit less meat. You know, we just need to make it easier for women to be pregnant. We need to accept the fact that we need to compromise in relationships and we need to make assisted dying legal and find a way to frame a law so that vulnerable people are only offered a means of taking their own life if that's what they truly want. And that requires intellectual effort. It doesn't require beautiful, shiny machines that look good in photographs and look great in a magazine. But yeah, that is not a, a sort of story that people want to hear, eat less meat. But it is the truth of it. And, and the point is, maybe now we don't need journalists so much to tell our own stories. That's the thing. You know, people are connected with the public in more ways than ever before. And there is a benefit in repeating <laughs> the messages that don't feed into the dominant narrative so much. But, you know, the fact that journalists tell these stories comes from the fact that human beings are used to hearing stories in a certain way. Because ultimately, a lot of journalism is entertainment, strangely enough. <laughs> Reading the book, just again, another thing that it drove home to me is just to develop a kind of certain set of habits, which is the next time you read of a technological solution, you know, maybe it's a you know vaccine for COVID, ask yourself, in whose interests is this story? Who's benefited from having this story out there? And then maybe say to yourself, what is the quality of evidence I'm being given here? Because if you just ask those two questions, it would probably help you a great deal in filtering out a lot of nonsense. Absolutely. And I would say, one of the great things that I've learned over the past sort of five or 10 years as a journalist is that you can have a total superpower if you really listen to people, if you really engage with text and look at the language used. So if you're reading a report about something and things are caveated or this is likely to result in or that kind of language. I mean, one of the things that has been a, a millstone around my neck for a long time is that I have to do my own transcription, that even if I get it done by other people or I get it done automatically, I still feel like, you know, I get ideas from going to my own tapes and typing it out myself. And I do from actually actively engaging with not just what's being said, but how it's being said. And that's where I find all the interesting fractures and pressure points in all of these stories. So yes, it's not just asking critical questions about things that appeal to you. But in this world where we are so bombarded with different stories of 140 characters or less, to take the time to listen and to really engage and the courage, if something doesn't make sense to you, even if you think you're going to ask an embarrassing basic question, that's where the real power comes from, is saying, this is strange or this doesn't make sense. Because if it doesn't make sense to you, it probably doesn't make sense to anybody. It probably isn't clear for a reason. And that's where you'll find out what is being hidden from you and what the real story is. 
Well, thanks so much, Jenny. So Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death is available now from online bookstores. But I would strongly encourage you to go to your local bookshop, which will be struggling for business, only have one customer at a time, and go and buy it from them or order it from them so you keep your local bookshop going. But it is a great read. Jenny, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.